of David, my Bible reads, to the chief musician on the Neganoth upon Shimoneth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak, O Lord. Heal me, for my bones are vexed, my soul also sore vexed. But thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. Oh, save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? I am weary with my groaning all the night. Make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Before I preach, let's go once again before the throne of God and ask his blessing upon the remainder of our time together. Father, I would pray, Lord, that we all would approach you for mercy, especially in light of words like these, Lord, that, that you might cause these words to sink down deep into our ears and into our hearts that we might be able to see ourselves even as David sees himself here. Father, that we might stand in fear before a holy and righteous God, that we might have contrite hearts and a broken spirit before Thee. Lord, that we might cry out in repentance and forgiveness unto your holy name because of the great sins that we have committed and continue to commit even in light of the great sacrifice that you've made with your son. Father, help your people to see that this is what you desire from us inwardly. Help us, Lord, to crush pride that we might stand before you humbled. Lord, that we might truly be the way David is here before you. I ask, Lord, that you might do that for your people, that they might even more so see the beauty and the majesty of what you've done through your Son, that we might continue to see the horridness and the wretchedness of the flesh and sin, by doing so that we might run to your throne for the very mercy we seek and ask now. Lord, for those who are here this morning that do not know your Son, that do not understand your mercy or your grace or your wrath and condemnation, may today be a day that they wake up, that your Spirit gives them life, that he quickens them through the preaching and the teaching of your word, that he might draw them to Christ this morning, and that they might find themselves bending their knee and confessing their sin and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. King and Lord. Lord, be with my lips this morning. I pray that you will preach through me, that your word will go forth in power for the glory of your Son and the glory of your own name. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
<clears throat> this is the first of what is called the penitential, penitential psalms. Songs of confession and humility before God. That, that's what they are. The other six are Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. If you were to go and read those psalms, you would see that they are songs or psalms, prayers, which were sung in a penitential, broken heart, a heart of confession, a heart of humility, a reality of David coming before God, understanding and recognizing his sin and crying out because of it. Not only because of his sin, but also his emotion and the fact and the reality of David knowing God. He, know, he doesn't know about God. This man knows God. And he understands something about that God and he understands something about himself and when he sins against that God this is the way he prays as I read this psalm and those others that I had mentioned I am humbled because I don't often pray this way we, we are often so proud even when it comes to our own sin we take a look at the New Testament and we look at Jesus Christ and we look at the sacrifice that has been made for us in the cross of Calvary and all of this is true and all of this is wonderful and all of this is great and we say, I'm forgiven, I'm free. My sin no longer bears its weight and its punishment on me. I don't have to fear the wrath of God. But on the other side of that coin, is there any kind of humility, any kind of brokenness over the sin that we continue to commit even in light of such a great sacrifice and it's as if we slap God in the face when it comes to our sin we take Christ just as a way to get out of something that's how a lot of Christianity in our world is lived today and I dare say it beloved it's not real Christianity to believe in Jesus Christ just to get something is not true Christianity what about the love of God, the worship of God, the honor of God, the glory of God? Lord, you've saved me, so in order that, not that I can just be forgiven of my sin, that's true, and praise God for it, but that I might be holy and without blame before you, that I might live before you in holiness and righteousness, and most Christians today, that waves goodbye. It's not about holy living. It's not about sanctification. It's not about becoming more and more and more like your Lord and your Savior and your King. It's just I got forgiven. And if that's true, that you have been forgiven, that the wrath of God has passed from you, that your sin was placed on Christ and His righteousness was placed on you, then your life must, must mold into that Christ-likeness, that's true Christianity. Without Christ-likeness, there is no Christianity. We've been talking about this Monday nights at uh, the Bible study that we've been having at Lindsay's and John and Sue Goebel's. Do you realize that sanctification, holiness, holiness, Christ-likeness is planned by God into His redemption? It's not optional. It is not optional. 
So therefore to say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I can do whatever I want, live however I want, I've been forgiven of all my sins, and it just doesn't matter. That is not what the doctrine of sanctification teaches. That is not what the Bible teaches on holiness and Christ-likeness. If you're not being conformed more and more and more into the image of Christ, which is an ongoing process through you the rest of your whole life, which ends in glorification. You can't have sanctification without glorification. What is God doing with you from here all the way into eternity? He's making you like His Son, and He is going to glorify you. The ultimate end of sanctification is glorification. And that process is something that must be seen, must be expressed, must be evidenced, must be lived out within a true child of God. If it isn't, you're not a child of God, and you need to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just to get something, but to be something. That's Christianity. I am not a child of God. I am not a believer in Jesus Christ just to get something. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ to be something. And that is a child of God that lives in holiness and righteousness to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. McDonald's Christians. I can have it my way. I can just go through the drive-thru, order whatever I want, and get it like that. I come to church to get for me. I, 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 I go to Bible studies to get for me. I, I read the Bible to get for me. I pray to get for me. All this is just to get for me. What about Him? What about God? What about His glory? David has come face to face with his own sin. And he understands something about the nature and the character of God. And it causes him to cry out. And these are the words he speaks. Verse 1. O oh Lord. Notice, I don't know if you can see it in your Bible as well as I can see it in mine. I don't know what translation you read. This is a New King James Version. Whatever version you're reading, I'm happy that you're reading a version. <laughs> They're all good. Read them all. King James and New King James and ESV and ASV. I think I'm up to 25 or 22 different translations that I read. Read them all. There's, I won't go any further than that. But it just pops right out here. Pops out there on the screen. Oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. You see it? Eight times in ten verses he addresses God. Lord! Who am I going to go to for help? Who in the world is going to rescue such a wretch like me? Who, who, who can I make my plea to? Who can I, I cry to this broken and ugliness and the, what I'm going through and what I'm feeling right now? Oh Lord! Oh Lord! Oh Lord! Oh Lord! That's just as clear as a bell, isn't it? You don't have to read it. You can see it. Look at it. You can see it. He's gone to the right place. He's gone to the right source. He already knows where his help is. His help is in the Lord. And so he cries. It looks like he's screaming. Oh, Lord. We run to so many different things, don't we? How am I going to get out of this mess? <laughs> 
I don't know, maybe the bank will help me out. Maybe I can borrow from someone else. <laughs> Have you ever cried like that? That many times, two verses, one, two, three, four times in two verses, screaming, oh, Lord. Do you pray like that? Do you know him like that? Rebuke me not in thine anger. We don't like words like this. We, we, don't, like to, we don't like to apply that to ourselves. Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. We don't understand or know what the sin was that, that David is expressing or what he got involved with. We're not told. <laughs> you read David's life, there's a lot of them, isn't there? Psalm 51, we know what's going on there, don't we? The sin of Bathsheba. David understands. This is where he prays, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. But here we don't, we don't know what his sin is. But he's feeling the weight of the chastening hand of Almighty God upon him, isn't he? That's what he's feeling. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger. Neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. What about us, beloved? Have you felt that? Have you ever prayed like this over your own sin? It's it may be difficult for us as Christians because we're on the other side of the cross, aren't we? David's on this side of the cross. The fullness of salvation, although understood, I believe. They're waiting for someone to come. The Old Testament saints look forward to a Savior. We look back to Him. They don't think that man is justified in the Old Testament any different than man is in the New Testament. How is Abraham justified? By faith. By faith in who? By faith in God. By faith in Jesus Christ. By the Redeemer that would come and one day make a sacrifice once and for all. That's how Abraham was justified. The same way you're justified. The same way anyone is justified. By faith alone in Christ alone. There are no two ways of salvation. Doesn't matter if you're looking at it in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Man is justified by faith alone in Christ alone. But David here, and in many other places in the Old Testament, he's under the chastening hand of God. He understands that he sinned, and his sin is an offense to Almighty God, and therefore he cries out, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. The difficulty for us being on this side of the cross is the mentality that we often get caught up in. God can never be mad at me again. Jesus died, he took the wrath of God, so the anger of God, kiss it goodbye, no more. And there, there, there's a sense, beloved, there's a sense that is healthy thinking. However, we have to be very careful that we don't misunderstand the character and nature of God and his holiness and his righteousness and dare I say it, even his anger over our sin as Christians. Hebrews chapter 12, 7, it says, if God's discipline for us, even though David may not have fully understand or understand like we're able to understand, God's discipline and his anger for us is not out of 
wrath and anger and that's it. I'm going to end you. It's all over. God's displeasure, God's anger over our sin, His chastening hand in disciplining that sin is evidence of our adoption. It is evidence that we have become children of God. Hebrews 12 says in 7, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there who a father does not chasten? If you're under the chastening hand of God, if you feel your sin bearing down upon you, and I hope you do, I don't know if you've ever prayed like this or have ever gone through anything like this that David's going through. I personally have not come near to the reality of the words that are here. But God, I need to. God's hand upon us by means and by way of His anger or His chastening is proof that we are adopted as His children. So if you're not chastened of the Lord, if you've never felt this, if you've never felt the weight of your sin that somehow God is distanced from you or away from you or pulled apart from you and you, you just want the affirmation of His love back, if you've never felt that, then you've never been chastened of the Lord. And if you haven't been chastened of the Lord, then you're not being treated as one of His children. And if you're not being treated as one of His children, then you're not a child. And so pray to God that He might bring it to you like that. When God corrects us, it doesn't feel good, but it is good and for our good. Did you get that? When God chastens His children, it doesn't feel good. But it is good. And it is for our good. God wants us to have a broken spirit, a contrite heart over the sin that we commit against Him. And it should ultimately lead us to prayer like this. It's difficult because as I said, or as I was saying, on this side of the cross, Jesus Christ, we focus on Him. Our faith is in Him. We look to Him. When Christ was on the cross of Calvary, what was He doing there? He was taking the wrath of God. For what? For my sin. So God, when He chastens in His anger or his rebuke or his chastening hand is the hand of our heavenly father disciplining us as his very own children it is not his wrath that is being poured out upon us it's proof of him treating us as his children David's on the other side of the cross and this may be a little more difficult for him verses 2 and 3 have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak, O Lord. Heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed. But thou, O Lord, how long? David cries out for mercy. David understands the trial of physical weakness and pain. David understands spiritual weakness and pain. There's a twofold aspect going on to David's trial, to the reason why he's crying out. There is body and soul. 
David is feeling this trial. David is feeling the chastening hand of God, not only physically, but also spiritually. <clears throat> My soul also is sore vexed. Have mer verse 2, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, for my bones are vexed. Perhaps David's sick. Perhaps he's wounded. Who, who knows what physically he's going through. But have you ever had your bones vexed? Have you ever felt like God's hand of chastisement is weighing so heavy on you specifically because of your sin? That you say, my, my bones even ache over it. My whole body's out of whack because of what, what I've done against you. Have you ever felt like that over your own sin? Body and soul. David sensed that he was under the chastisement of God and he still knew that he should ask God to shorten the trial. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul also is sore vexed. But how, O Lord, how long? David understands what he's going through. He's going through it because of his very own sin. And yet he cries. He begs God for mercy. And he asks him, how long? Shorten it, Lord. How long? How long will you weigh heavy upon me? But you notice something about David. When he cries out, when he prays this prayer of penitence, it is not done with a motivation to just get out of it. What's his motivation? Lord, I need you. I, I need you to return. I need to be right with you. We, we don't often pray like that, do we? Lord, take it away. Get rid of the trial. I'm in pain. I'm in sorrow. My body is sore. My, my soul is sick. And Lord, just take the trial away. Just get me out of trouble so I can feel good again. That's not what David is doing here. By the time we get to the end of the prayer, David is restored. He has a certainty of God hearing him and answering him and listening to him. And it's as if God himself has said, David, your heart is right with me. I hear your prayer. I'm listening to you. I hear the voice of your weeping and I am going to bring myself back to you. You're no longer going to feel alone and afraid and sore and soul sick anymore. I'm going to let you know, I'm going to reaffirm to you, David, that the reality and the truth is, is I never left you. Soul sick over sin. That may be another good title for this message. Soul sick over sin. We laugh at our sin. We really don't let it weigh heavy on us like this, do we? Do you? been going through a lot of marriage counseling lately. <laughs> you get to Genesis 3 and there Adam and Eve are and they eat a piece of fruit. They eat a piece of fruit. And if you read it at face value, there's part of you that wants to look at that and say, man, they just ate a piece of fruit. It's not that they just ate a piece of fruit. They disobeyed the creator of heaven and earth. But even more than that, 
when they were faced with a decision. Would you choose all the glorious pleasures of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Would you have him be your satisfaction? Would you have him be your certainty? Would you have him be the one who your eye does not leave and you fall in love and you enjoy him forever? Or will you take the fruit? And man says, give me the fruit. Give me the fruit. That's what we do every single day. Give me the fruit. God stands before us with open arms and says, you can enjoy me forever. And if you want true pleasure and true joy and you want to be truly satisfied, you will find your treasure in me. And we say, give me the fruit. Verses 4 and 5. David cries, Return, O Lord. Deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave who shall give thee thanks? In his agony David pleads for deliverance, but on the grounds of God's mercy, not his own righteousness. You see what he says? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. David's not crying to God, asking him to get him out of something so he can benefit from it. But he's, he's making a plea based on, on the grounds of God's mercy, not his own righteousness. How often do we go before God and plead before God, I, I, I'm okay, I didn't do anything wrong, I, didn't, I, I don't know what's going on here. Or do we even do that? Remember the last time you got sick? Last time you were going through the trial, whether it's a broken bone or a sore back or hurt knees or whatever that is. Have you ever considered, have you ever, is, is that just accidental? Or could it be the chastening hand of God on you for your own sin? We'll read a little bit later when we get to the communion table in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's a bunch of people come into the church and they're not discerning the Lord's body. They're not really concerned with one another. They don't really care what's going on with each other. One man's drunk, another's eating before everybody gets there. And because they're not discerning the Lord's body, Paul writes to them and says, For this reason, because of your sin, many are weak, many are sick, and there are many who are dying among you. God is chastening them. And then he tells us what we read for a scripture reading. If you would judge yourself, you would not be judged. But God is chastening them. Have you ever thought of that in your own life? What are you struggling with? What, what are you sore about? What are you broken over? What's hurting? What's the problem you're going through? And can it be, or could it be, that that is the chasing hand of God trying to wake you up to your own sin? It's not always that. It's not always that. But I think that's something that has to be determined and figured out. We read in the New Testament, Peter... We read it in James. Preach the message on it. Consider it pure joy when you go through trials of various kinds. 
God is growing your faith. For we know that the testing of our faith is worth much more than gold or silver that perishes. God is treating us as children. Sometimes, come here, faith, sometimes what God wants to do through trials, through tribulation, through struggles, it's as if God is going like this to us. It doesn't have to do with sin at all. Sometimes God is just going, I really love you, you know that? You know how much I love you? You're ready for a trial because your faith needs to grow. And so I'm going to bring you through the fire. And after you're done with the fire, what remains is going to be pure gold. So I know it's going to be hard and I know it's going to hurt as you go through it, but you got some dross in you that needs to be get gone. And so I'm going to turn the heat up and run you through the fires. And after this trial is over, you're going to come forth as pure gold. That's what it is sometimes. But sometimes, sometimes, it's you got sin in your life. And it offends him. And he says, I'm going to have to put you through the fire to cause you to see the error of your way, to bring you to a repentance that is going to result in life and peace and joy and glory. And so I have to chasten you because you're my child. And I will not let my children play in the garbage. That's what David understands here. This is why David makes his plea of deliverance based upon the foundation of God's mercy. He understands something. David knows God's chastening is righteous and it is deserved. But he also knows God is rich in mercy. David's plea for mercy is evidence that he is aware that he doesn't deserve it. Whenever you plead with God for his mercy, that's evidence that you understand something about God. Lord, I deserve your wrath. I deserve all the chastening you can give me. I deserve for you to hit me over the head with a two-by-four. I deserve hell. But I beg you for mercy. I'm as guilty as guilty can be, Lord. Whether that's I haven't been walking with you, I haven't been praying to you, I haven't been in communion with you, or I've been a thorn in someone's flesh, I've been gossiping, I've been talking, I've been speaking ill about other people, about other Christians, I haven't been fair in business, whatever that is. Lord, I'm as guilty as guilty can be. And I know that whatever you give me is deserved. But have mercy, O God. That's what David cries. That's why he begs for mercy. He has an understanding of the chastising hand of God. The judgment of God, if you will. He says, Lord, whatever you determine to do, I deserve it. But I also know that you're a God of great, great mercy. I know that you're rich in mercy. So I plead with you on the grounds of your own mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God. Return. Return. That word return, O Lord. Deliver my soul. Return. What, is, what does David feel? The same way he felt in Psalm 51. Lord, Lord, don't take your spirit from me. 
For us as Christians, we may not understand this. We may not comprehend it like they, but have, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever asked God to return? And I know, believe me, I, I know New Testament, we've been immersed into Christ. We're united to Christ. Once you're united to Christ, you can never get ununited to Christ. You can't lose your salvation. If God, by His grace and His sovereign hand, has immersed you into the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, the old you is dead, the, new, the old you is buried with Christ, the new you has risen up with Christ, how can that be undone? It, it can't be. It's impossible for it to be undone. I understand that. I know that. So don't, don't come up to me later and say, well, hey, preacher, you know, God doesn't really ever leave us. I understand that. But have you ever sensed have you ever felt this in your soul that God is somehow distanced from you? It's as if he hasn't heard your cries or your prayers. It's that you've sinned in such a way against him that it's as if he's turned his face from you. Have you ever felt that? That's what David's feeling. Return, oh God. Job felt it. Job felt it. Oh, if I can only, if I can only feel and hear him again. If I can only plead my case before him. If he would only return and give me the affirmation of his love. For, for eons and for years I was so with him and connected but now it seems like in my in my stress and in my trial and in all of this that's going on all I really want is an affirmation of his love but he seems so distant and in that case it wasn't sin at all was it Job didn't commit any sin but here in David's case he senses it he feels it because of his sin so he cries return Verse 5, he says these words, difficult words, but here they are. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? Again, David is on the other side of the cross. Here he is, he feels like he's going to die. He's pleading for God's mercy. He's pleading for God to, to help him, to, to reaffirm his love to him because he says in verse 5, In death there's no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? David understands something about God. God, the way it is right now, as I live, as I'm alive, if you restore me, I have the opportunity, these lips have the opportunity to give thee praise and to rejoice over thee and to give thanks. But if I die, what good will it be then? And this may not simply be just for God himself, but, but the testimony before men, the testimony before other people. Lord, deliver me now, because if I'm dead, no one will hear the great glorious wonders of your grace by delivering me from my trial. It is not as though it's difficult because there's certain places in the Old Testament we can go to, for example, like Job. Job's own testimony. I know my Redeemer liveth, and my eyes shall see him. Job had really good theology with the, the life after death, didn't he? And he's on that side of the cross. Sometimes, more oftentimes, the, the afterlife in the Old Testament is murky. 
It's, it's shadowy. It's dark. Sheol, death, the place of the dead. They, they don't have an understanding of glory and heaven and the majesty of God and being in the kingdom of heaven forever and ever. Why? Because Jesus didn't show up yet. Jesus comes to earth in, in what does a lot of, I would say most of his preaching and teaching, what does it revolve around? Heaven and hell. Heaven and hell. Eternal life and eternal death. Not only that, we have a Savior who has experienced death for us and death couldn't hold him and he rose from the dead and therefore all that believe in him will also, as he did, raise from the dead into eternal life. Those who don't believe him into eternal destruction. We have a more sure word of prophecy. So when David says, in death there's no remembrance of thee, we, we would go like, what? When I die... There's going to be all the remembrance of God that I need. But David's on the other side of the cross. However, David's point here in this psalm is not to present a comprehensive theology of the world beyond. It is not there for that reason. He is in agony, fearing for his life. He knows he can remember God and give him thanks right now. He doesn't have the same certainty about the world beyond, so he asks God to act according to his certainty. David isn't, a, a lot of people will go back to a verse like this and say, see, there's no such thing as eternal life or heaven or glory. It's, it's not there to prove a theological point. We're looking inside the heart of a man who's broken over his own sin. And he may not have the knowledge that we have right now. And so his, the fact of him crying out and saying, Lord, I'm alive now. I can give you thanks right now. I can remember you now. I can praise you now. But if I die, that's all over. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to act according to that certainty that I have. He's not trying to give you a picture and plan of what everlasting life or life after death looks like he's broken here we need to get that we need to get that there is an eternity to be had for Christians and there is eternal life in Christ there is a resurrection to come even the Old Testament points to that in various places it might be Enoch or Elijah it might be in seed form but it's there we come to the New Testament, the knowledge that we have because of our Savior, because of our Lord, because of Jesus Christ, we have a full picture, don't we? We have eternal life in Christ. But there's somewhat of something we need to get what David is saying here and apply it to ourselves. A sleeping dog is better than a dead lion. A sleeping dog is better than a dead lion. At least a dog can be woken up and bark every now and then. I would never want the Lord to take me out and grow sin. He may have to do that. I'd rather have him take me out on a time when I'm praising him. That my testimony before the eyes and the ears of other men would be, that was a man who worshipped and loved God. 
many people around who claim the name of Christ after they're dead and gone. And there's a whole bunch of people who would say, well, they're, they're Christians, you know. They would give you their testimony even when they were in the gutters and down in the slime pits and when they were high on drugs and drinking booze. I wish they would stop. If you're going to live like that and tell people about Jesus, you ain't doing them any glory. It's not a testimony of His grace and His kindness to live a life of gross sin and say, I'm a Christian. It's a scar on who He is. If you claim the name of Christ and live like an unbeliever, stop doing that. Get rid of one. David understands it. I have sinned greatly against you. But Lord, change me. Deliver me. Save me. That the praises of you may be upon my lips. That's what he's saying. Verse 6, 7. I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with tears. My eyes are consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all my enemies. God's chastening was heavy upon David. His life seemed to be nothing but tears and misery. It's poetic literature. We don't take what David is saying literally. Like, like all night long I caused my bed to swim with tears. It's poetic literature. It paints a beautiful picture, doesn't it? I've cried so much, the picture in your mind ought to be that my bed is floating around in my room on the tears that I've cried. Poetic literature. I've, I've wept so much that my eyes have, my eye is consumed because of grief. It waxes old because of my enemies. It's just a beautiful way of saying, I have cried so much that my eyes hurt. They're red, they're sore, they're drooped. There's bags under my eyes. I, I've cried so much it seems as though my couch is flooded with my tears. Do you ever repent like that? Do you ever have your sin in the chastening hand of God weigh down so heavy on you because of your sin that you can pray that? When's the last time your eyes hurt from crying so much over your own sin? Have they ever? In the light of that sacrifice on Calvary, have they ever? Humbling. Humbling words. David's, the, the, the components to his trial, just to give you more of what's here, seems to be, there seems to be three components to it. One is that he felt God was angry with him. The second thing is, is he lacked a sense of God's presence. We've already been over those two. The third, which is the last one we just went over, he couldn't sleep. Do a study on sleep in Scripture. I don't know, it's been a few years ago now. Someone came to me and said I couldn't sleep. I said, well, let me give you some, let me look at the Bible and see what it says about sleeping. And I studied it for a while. Sleep is a gift of God. Sleep itself is one of the gifts God gives to us. Your body needs rest. I'll give you sleep. You notice in the Psalms that I've preached already before, David's running from Absalom. He's running away from his son. There, there's whole armies out there to kill him. And what does he say? 
but I laid my head down and I will sleep. Here, he can't sleep. Different. There, he's not in any sin. It's their sin. They're after him. He's pleading to God to take care of them. Here, it's his own sin. And what's the problem now? He can't sleep. All night I make my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. My eyes are so red and dim from weeping. It's heavy stuff. He says, because of my enemies, because of my enemies, because of all my enemies, I don't fully understand that, but David seems be brought so low that his enemies no longer spur him to seize victory. He is depressed and he is discouraged. You notice before you read other Psalms of David and oftentimes it's his very enemies that spur him on to seize victory. Many are they that rise up against me, Lord. Many are they that say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, but thou, O Lord, are a shield for me, the glory and the lifter of my head. It's his very enemies that cause him to say, Lord, they're doing this, but you, you, O oh God. Here he just seems to wallow. Now we don't know because of verses 8 through 10, Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed. <clears throat> it may be that the sin that led David into this chastening was association with the ungodly. Quite possible. Seems that way to me as I read through it. That this chastening of God, this what he feels being distanced from God or God being angry with him or God's presence not being there with him or this, this, this uh, not being able to sleep could be that it is a result of his association with the ungodly. But in the end, we see David acting consistently with his change of heart and telling all the ungodly associates to depart. Something happened in David's heart and in his mind. He understands something. He understood something. My eye is consumed, verse 7, because of grief. It waxeth old because of all my enemies. So what's the best thing to do? You cry out to God and you tell your enemies, depart from me. Separate yourself from wickedness. That's what David's doing. He's acting consistently with the change of heart, with the change of mind, with the understanding, perhaps, that this is what got me in trouble in the first place. Guess what? I'm not going to hang around that anymore. What a New Testament perspective that is. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers in any situation. Whether that's marriage, whether that's a business relationship, friendships, all of that. You have to be careful how close you get to ungodly people. Evil company corrupts good morals, doesn't it? David understands. He says, this is my sin. This is what we're wrong. This is where I went wrong. All ye workers of iniquity, get away from me. We don't think like that. Young people, you don't think like that. 
I know the young boy is an unbeliever, but I'm going to spend some time with him with the hopes that he comes to Jesus. That's not a good witnessing program. That's not a good witnessing program. We'll start to date and everything will be okay and I'll just witness to him all along the way with the hopes that he'll become a Christian. I say young people, some of you older folks are involved in that. Be very careful how closely yoked you are to the ungodly. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for witnessing to people. I'm all for telling unbelievers about Jesus Christ. That's the only hope they have and it's the best news they're ever going to get. Amen? But be very careful the platform you approach to give that to them on. Before you know it, you'll be doing what unbelievers do in order to try to get unbelievers believers, and that don't work. David understands that. And in the end, he calls all of the workers of iniquity to depart from him for a reason. 4, verse 8, Because the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping, the Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Do you know God like that? Do you pray with that assurance? Do, do you pray with that certainty? The, the, the words when I pray, I have a God who hears my prayer, who's going to understand, he's going to listen, that he hears the voice of my weeping. When I'm sore vexed, when I'm body, soul, and spirit all out of whack because of my own sin, that is the very reason why I should pray to him. You know what sin will do to you? Sin will cause you to say, how can I pray to him now? After all that I've done, after all that I've thought, after all that I've done wrong, he won't hear me now. That's not David's theology, is it? He'll hear me. He's going to hear the voice of my weeping. He is going, he, he, not, not is he going to hear, he has heard, verse 9. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. David doesn't pray haphazardly. He doesn't have a thinking of the Almighty that says, well, you know, this, this might not even work. He trusts. He has victory through trial. He has victory through trial and prayer. David's temporary trials led him to weep, to cry out, and he knows that the Lord heard the voice of his weeping, that God heard his supplication, and that he will receive David's prayer. Beloved, is there anything better than that? That you have the ear of the one who spoke this world into existence if you're his child. You have his ear. Even, even when you're disgustingly swallowed up in the mud hole of sin, he will still hear your prayer. If that's the case with you this morning, I plead with you. Cry out to God. Beg Him for His mercy. Speak to Him the pain and the suffering and the trial that you're going through. 
Ask him to lighten it, but don't ask him to lighten it just to get out of it. Ask him to lighten it for his own glory, for the glory of his own son, and that you may learn what you're going through really, really well. Quick story, and then I'm done. We'll do communion. Billy Jeffrey, Jack Jeffrey was my pastor for years. I still consider him my pastor. He's a great man, very biblical man. His wife may even be more so. <laughs> Where the rubber meets the road, this woman has God's ear like I've never seen it before. I mean, if I have something that's really irking me, I got some prayer warriors that I have, and I go to them prayer warriors, I need you to pray for this because I know that she has God's ear. But one time I was talking to her, and I was going through some pretty pretty tough stuff, pretty tough trials. And I asked her to pray for me. And she said this to me. She said, I will pray for you, but let me tell you what I'm going to pray. I'm not going to ask God to take you out of the trial. I'm going to ask him to work the trial really good into your life. That's what trials are for. That's what chastening is for. So that we don't come out of the chastisement. That we don't come out of the trial like disobedient children. But that we worship and honor and love a God who loves us with a love that we can't even fully understand. Beloved, if you're going through that kind of a trial, if you're under the chastening hand of God even now because of your own sin, I'm going to pray that God works the trial in really really good let's pray father thank you for grace this morning thank you for your love thank you lord for not allowing us to live like disobedient children but that you chasten us father i pray that you would give us hearts that would be contrite that would be broken that that would be honorable before you lord that we would lay all pride and haughtiness aside that we might stand before you earnestly and honestly, understanding that we still commit sin every day. And although the sacrifice of your Son has paid for everyone and has taken every drop of wrath for every one of those sins, Lord, it still is a displeasure to you to have your children disobedient. So we would ask that you might work in such a way that would cause us to become more and more like your Son. And by doing so, we would honor and glorify you. I ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I'm going to ask the gentlemen to come for communion. While they're on their way, if you want to quickly run back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I won't take much time. But I think it's very interesting, and I hope that this gives you just a little bit of a greater perspective of that. Come on up, fellas. If judgment begins, it begins first at the house of God. Peter said that. 